Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did. Good morning and welcome to The Morning Briefing for Monday, June 4th, 2018. I'm your host, Eric Dame. Jake Hughes is your producer. And coming up on today's show, we are going to speak with Iraq and Afghanistan veterans of America. We're going to speak to their chief policy officer as well as their chief research officer about the latest statistics coming out from the Department of Labor. We're going to find out what those job reports that you probably heard about late last week, I think they came out on Friday, we're going to hear about exactly what they mean for the veteran community and what they tell us about the veteran community, among other things, when we speak with IAVA coming up in just a little bit. And then later in the show, we're going to speak to the National Restaurant Association. JQ sat down with them to talk to them about some veteran initiatives and how veterans are involved in the world of restaurant touring and food and all of those good things. I'm starting to get hungry now just thinking about it. And all of that's coming up on today's show. And we welcome first, of course, super producer Jake Hughes into the studio. Jake, good morning. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. Eric, how are you? I'm doing pretty well. Had a decent weekend. Went to the uh, aquarium with my son yesterday and one of his little best friends. And then the day before, we had a birthday party for one of his kids from school. So hung out with all the parents there and did all that stuff. So yeah, kind of a, a family-centric weekend and had a pretty good time. How about yourself? I attempted to be social this weekend, Ooh. but it didn't end up well. <laughs> what happened? Well, okay, because I literally, this is how pathetic I am. I literally Googled things to do this weekend in D.C. Yeah. And the you ever, ever heard of the website Eventbrite? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, the one of the things that popped up was this dude's birthday party. And it said it was open invitation. Uh, about 200 people had registered. So I yeah. figured, you know what? Yeah. I'll do it. I'll go. I'll be social. Have a few drinks. <laughs> be the life of the party. You know. <laughs> do your so thing. my first mistake was I get there. The party started at 3. And my being too military, I got there at 3.05 when they were just getting ready. Right. So everyone's kind of looking at me funny. And then eventually one of the guys pulls me aside and said, yeah, I mean, we're not mad at you, but this was supposed to be family and friends only. Well, how did it end up on Eventbrite? I know, that's what I said. I'm like, but it said open invitation. I'm sorry. So (laughs) so the the takeaway of the story is that I tried. An attempt was made to be social this weekend. Yeah. Well, hey, that's all you can do. And sometimes things like that happen where they'll put an event out there. And it it does happen where it's uh, apparently not supposed to be, but somebody puts it there and doesn't put the settings on properly. But you know, hey, if it yeah. was just for friends and family, well, why not make a new friend on that day? What better way to celebrate your birthday? But, you know, some people don't want to do that. That's the thing. When I went the birthday party for one of the kids uh, from my son's preschool, and you're like, okay, I don't know who this child is. I don't – I'd met some of the parents before at other birthday parties, uh, including the parents of the little boy whose birthday it was. A happy birthday, Miles. So you go over there and it's just like, oh, who do we talk to? What do we do? So my wife is talking to people. I'm talking to people. And then we also realize like, oh, well, his uh, his preschool, his graduation was last week. He's there for a few more weeks until summer camp starts. But, you know, it's one of those things where we start talking to the other parents and we realize because of the area where we live, there are so many uh, elementary schools 
none of the kids at the party are going to be going to the same school as him. Oh, wow. All right, so these relationships are probably coming to an end in very short order. But still, you know, it's good to get out and do something. It's better than on a rainy weekend sitting inside playing video games and stuff like that with my son, which is always fun, but... Except he also gets really frustrated at video games because he can't do things immediately. He's like me. If he's not good at something right away, he gets so angry. So angry. Just like I used to when I was little. Now I'm able to handle it a little bit more. But when he's trying to make Lego Batman jump from one side to another and doesn't get it the first time, it's like, oh, the meltdown begins. Yeah. But, you know, what are you going to do? That's what kids do sometimes. What we do is talk about veteran and military issues here on the morning briefing and, of course, on ConnectingVets.com. Connecting Vets every day. Go check out the website and follow us on social media where we are at Connecting Vets on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Jake, are you familiar with these Coca-Cola cans that have people's name on them where it's like, share a Coke with Jake? Yeah, I've seen them. Yeah, I've never seen my name on it, and it's not that uncommon a name. Eric is a fairly common name, I would think. I've never seen an Eric one. Uh, There are some interesting ones out there. Well, there's a new variety that are going to be sold just at the Dollar General stores, which I, I haven't been into a Dollar General in many years, but apparently they have a deal with Coca-Cola where Coke and Dollar General are selling these uh, special cans and they're going to donate $100,000 to the USO and all that good stuff. So these cans say, share a Coke with a sailor. And then it's got a little drawing of a sailor. Share a Coke with an airman. A little drawing of a, I guess an airman. I guess that's their uniform. I don't know. Share a Coke with a Coast Guardsman. And then you would think Army and Marine, right? Soldier, Marine, nope. Share a Coke with a hero has the drawing of the soldier underneath it. And share a Coke with a veteran has the drawing of the Marine under it. Like the kind of uh, an outline of a faceless Marine there. Apparently some people getting quite upset about this. Uh. Like, what, what about soldiers and what about Marine? How come we get left out? Well, for one, you're on the can. If you know anything about the uniforms, you can see like, oh yeah, that's a soldier right there with the beret. That's a Marine. He's got the, you know, the choker on there with the Eagle Globe and anchor and all that stuff. Uh, I don't know why Coke decided to not just say soldier or Marine and put in hero and veteran, but I also don't know why anyone in their right mind would be irritated by this. Yeah, it's the uh, <clears throat> rear end damage, we'll say, of some people flaring up. Yeah, there you go. I mean, do you care that there's not no, a, a I don't. Coke I don't for- give a, we'll say, a hoot. A hoot, hoot, strong language coming out. I know, right? I just, we may have to censor that. You got the dump button ready? (laughs) Yeah, I'm I'm prepared. But yeah, so it's like, I don't understand why people are getting upset by this. This It's a great gesture from the Coca-Cola company and Dollar General. And just the fact that I think it comes from the insecurity that they mentioned the Coast Guard, but not the Marines specifically or the soldiers specifically. So it's like, well, you recognize the Coast Guard. Why not us? Here's the other thing. Other than the sailor which, of course, it's the coloring of it is kind of odd, but you've got the Dixie cup. That's the uh, the white hat, as people know, Sailors is wearing, and the, the neckerchief and all that stuff. That's pretty identifiable as a sailor. The airman design on this Coke can... I, I don't know. Looks more like a like a flight attendant from like the sixties or something. Because it's not. Here, look, I mean, you can see it. I'll show you there. Look at the airman one. It's the third from the left there, I believe. And then the coast guardsman on the right. I don't even know what that is. That just doesn't even look like a uniform to me over on the right. Like I don't recognize looks like a ball that. cap. Yeah, it, and well, the coast guard wears ball caps a lot, and it is. And and it's. Here's the thing. The other than the sailor, the two uniforms on there, as you just saw, that are recognizable. 
the soldier and the Marine. You can look at that and be like, oh, yeah, that's a Marine. Oh, yeah, that's a soldier. The airmen and the Coast Guardsmen in particular just look kind of wacky. Like, uh, I don't know, the the airmen one, partially because of the coloring of it, but it's got like a tie-on with very wide lapeled suit. It just doesn't look like an Air Force uniform to me. Although, when we think about the Air Force, their uniforms are kind of the least known of the four major yeah, branches. They don't the, stick out. They're and Aren't they in the process of changing over their uniforms as well? Oh, I, think I think they're think going to the is. same OCP that the Army is using. Oh, interesting. So, yeah, they uh, uh, the Navy, of course, I saw an article uh, on uh, Navy Times that the Navy's looking at yet another uniform change. And the uniforms that they're looking at, I saw the pictures that look ridiculous. Like everybody's, the males, the females, everybody's, they all look like maternity wear. <laughs> there's no there's no better way to put it. I mean, look at look at these things. Look at these uniforms. They're like untucked shirts. It looks like everybody's pregnant in that photo, including the gentleman in the middle. No, I mean, yeah, you're right. It's like that's the that's the uniform or that's what it looks like when a, a female soldier is pregnant. Yeah, that's the way they get to wear too. Yeah. They would get uh, a different shirts that would be was designed to be worn untucked. They're looking at these. This is something that's not in place yet or anything like that, but it just it looks silly to me. And the Navy's had I mean, just in my time from ninety eight when I joined, we still had dungarees, which were these bell bottom uh, denim type jeans with a, a light blue shirt, and then they moved to the oh, uh, what was it called? I don't even, maybe, oh, utilities, which were like dark blue uh, pants with the same light blue shirt. And then from there, you moved to the NWU, which was that blue camouflage uniform that people had a lot of funny little opinions on. Like, what, yeah. what are you trying to blend in with the water? That seems like a bad idea. You don't want to blend in with the water if you go overboard, which is a valid point. The Navy is kind of known for changing uniforms regularly and constantly. Now that I'm out and I look at these, uh, these things that they're looking at, and there's there's I'm looking at polls on it, uh, looking good or nope, nope got 84 percent on these. Uh, <laughs> so this is uh, it's kind of a flashback to the utilities, the second uniform, second working uniform that we had when I came in. They also changed the um, everything except for the dress uniforms. Dress uniforms, dress whites, and dress blues are kind of the you know the cracker jacks as some people call them. That's what the guys wearing on the cracker jack box. Those uniforms stayed the same. Everything else changed. And changed a lot. Like we went the uh, we had two different uniforms that you would wear as kind of a I think what the class alpha is that what the army calls it? It's just like a, a dressier, like a less not a full dress uniform, but something that looks a little bit more official, like business C. You know, I don't think thing. we have something like that. We have duty uniform, and then we have class A's. Yeah, but there's like, don't you have like a more dressed up version of that uniform? And then you have the one that's just like a shirt and tie, like the white. Oh, shirt yeah. The, the, we, yeah. It, but it, you're still wearing the same uniform parts it's as the Class it, A. So they just call it a Class B. The Navy had a different uniform. They were the Johnny Cashes, which were, uh, they of course would call them um, working blues. They were not blue, they were black. It was a black shirt, black pants, black tie, uh, black hat. Um, and then you had the summer whites, which were white pants, short sleeve white shirt, uh, and you would wear it with the Dixie cup that that white uh, the white sailors had, as people would call it. You had those two different uniforms, and there was a a line where you wore whites all year long. Like if you lived in South Florida or you were stationed in South Florida, you never wore the working blues or dress blues. It was whites all year round. The line was somewhere in Florida. I remember from working in. Uh, the recruiting district where we were in Jacksonville, we did switch between whites and blues, but then there was this like our farthest south station. I don't know if it was Melbourne, Florida or something like that. They 
were below the line. So when they were working, they always had to wear the whites. But then if they came up to Jacksonville, they had to change into the blues. You could see how that could get kind of confusing based on where you were stationed. And extra uniforms. So they changed that. They got rid of that and uh, put in the... uh, uh, the peanut butters, I guess, as some people called them, which was a khaki short sleeve shirt. I thought that's like only what pants. Chiefs wore. Yeah, see, that was the argument. The Chiefs were not happy about it. So Chiefs, their uniform is entirely khaki, and it's the same as what the officers wear, their working uniform. Uh, big difference when you get promoted to Chief, get selected for Chief Petty Officer in the Navy. It's it's perhaps, no, it's not even perhaps, it's the biggest promotion in the enlisted military that there is. Yes, E6 to E7 is the same monetarily and everything across all the branches, but the difference between a petty officer first class and a chief as far as the authority and what they can do and what they can't do uh, is more significant than going from like staff sergeant to gunny in the Marine Corps or staff sergeant to sergeant first class in the Army or anything like that. It's just, it's a big deal and they did not like that people were going to be wearing a khaki shirt on the enlisted side that weren't chiefs even though the pants were black as opposed to the khaki pants that the Chiefs wore. That was a whole thing. I think that uniform may be going away now. Like, the Navy just keeps going around. Yeah, circles. people make fun of the Army for changing uniforms. Oh, I no. wore I wore three uniforms when I was in. I started at, in BDUs, which is the green uh, forest camouflage. And then I went to DCUs, which is the desert camouflage, when I deployed to Iraq. And then we had the ACUs which was the blue one that didn't blend in with hardly anything. (laughs) And then now, right as I was getting out, they were changing over to the OCP, which is the digitized forest camo. Right. Yeah, and I remember those uh, fairly well. When I deployed with the Army, I wore the ACU. and So in the Navy, when I first joined, you had how many uniforms? Okay, so you had your dungarees, which were, you know, your everyday working uniform, summer whites, winter blues, dress whites, dress blues, that's five uniforms right there that you had to have in your sea bag. And then, of course, they added in coveralls a short time after that for when you're – it's basically only supposed to be when you're on a ship or something like that. Uh, the Navy also had wacky rules as far as where you could wear any of those uniforms. Like the working uniforms, the dungarees, followed by the utilities, the coveralls, those things that were considered working uniforms, you could not wear like anywhere out in town. You couldn't do it. And then when they developed the NWU, the Navy working uniform, the blue camouflage, those had similar restrictions on them, at least for a time where you weren't allowed to like stop and get something to eat. You like you could stop to pump gas, go to the bathroom. That's about it. You couldn't do anything else in them. And a lot of sailors always looked at it like, why are you putting us in these uniforms if you're so ashamed of them? You don't want us to be seen in public in them. Well, it was odd. I well, two things. Number one, I love that you described it as wacky. That's oh, a very, good, very no, interesting word. And number, uniform stuff is wacky. Yeah, and number two, the army is the same way. On paper, you're not allowed to wear the ACU or OCP now uniform. Your working uniform out in public because they want if you're going to represent the army, they want you to wear the dress uniform. Huh. Like that, you can wear pretty much anywhere unless it's like a political rally or something. Yeah, as long anywhere where it puts the army in a negative light. What well, was the same with the navy's? Uh, you know, the 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 working dress uniform, I guess, the winter whites and blues, and then that that khaki and black combination, and the dress whites and blues. You could wear those anywhere, but nobody ever did. You don't ever like you, you would wear those to like the navy ball or something like that. You never just were wearing it and then went out in town. Sometimes if you worked at certain commands, you'd wear the winter blues or summer whites uh, fairly regularly, and then you would go out. And Like when I worked in Jacksonville, I wore those and we'd go everywhere. But you'd see the Army recruiters when I worked in Navy recruiting in their camouflage uniforms going everywhere, and it, it made sense. People knew they were in the Army. 
You know, the, the, the Army's dress uniforms are never going to be as well known as the uniforms that they wear into combat. Yep. So that's it was a good recruiting tool for them. So for recruiters, they had some different rules there. And then the Navy recruiters wanted to be able to wear the NWUs because, you know, while the feasibility of it as a uniform and the the usefulness of it and the sense of it as a uniform was questionable it it looked cool people looked at it and were like oh wow that's pretty interesting there are people who buy that pattern who never served in the navy or the military just because they like it it's kind of a cool camouflage pattern this uh, blue gray and black digital camouflage but yeah, it'll be interesting to see what they do with these uniforms uh, yeah, that I, I think, all look like maternity clothes. I think we can all agree that when it comes to dress uniforms, the Marine Corps wins. Oh, the Marine Corps wins. Absolutely. Yeah, their dress uniform is the... I mean, iconic. it's iconic. So is the Navy dress uniform, but in a different way. Like, the you see someone in uh, the... Navy's dress uniform, and you think too, uh, like that famous picture of the sailor kissing the nurse in uh, Times Square and the announcement of uh, uh, the signing of the uh, armistice and end of World War II. You think of that. You think of the Cracker Jack box. You think of you know the drunken sailor out on the yeah. town. It doesn't have the uh, let's say all the positive connotations that the Marine Corps one does. Where you look at a Marine, they could be a garbage Marine, and they are out there. There are Marines who are just not very good at marining. You put them in that uniform though, and oh man. They look good. Yeah, that that's somebody you want doing uh, some good at work for you and, and taking charge of stuff. And again, that uniform is it's iconic. The the army's dress uniforms I, have never really stuck out to me. The air force, again, going back to this whole share a coke thing with uh, everybody except for the army and marine corps apparently, and that's you know got people upset. Rawr. But the the air force uniforms are just kind of nondescript to me. They've never stood. It just looks like a like a blue suit. That's all it is. And the Air Force and the Coast Guard actually have similar dress uniforms because the Coast Guard doesn't have something like the Navy does that, that you know, the, the dress whites and dress blues, those very iconic sailor outfits, despite the fact that they're a sea service, their dress uniform is like, it, it looks like the Air Force uniforms. It's like blue, just a blue suit, different colored shirt and all that stuff. But yeah, I think that's why on those two cans, the Coast Guardsman and the Airman, you kind of need to say what those are. Otherwise, people would be like, sure, Coke with a b- b- bus driver? <laughs> or what's this guy wearing a baseball hat? It's funny. That's a, That was the big complaint we got when we changed over to the new dress uniform, the dress blues in the Army, was it looks like a bus driver. Yeah. But I come at, see the army's trying to fix it by going back to the pink and tan like from way back in the day. Oh, yeah, like World War II. Yeah, yeah, but the problem is they've changed the uniform so much between them, and it's never going to have that same iconic feel as the Marine dress black or dress black and red or whatever you call it. Yeah. Well, moving on to uh, another story here, and this is one where we actually had the National Parks Department come on the show, Mike Ladurst, who's. He's uh, in D.C. He's one of the heads of the uh, the park uh, media groups there. They came in to talk to us about the growing number of remains being left at the Vietnam veteran or the Vietnam veteran memorial. And it was something that they weren't equipped to handle. They're not set up to handle these human remains. Uh, of course, there are very specific ways that human remains must be handled by law. Uh, and people were bringing them there, family members, friends, like it was someone's uh, last wish to be you know, placed at the Vietnam Veteran Memorial. The problem is that the Park Service would have to come and clean all of those up because they're not allowed to stay out there for various reasons. I mean, you've got elderly veterans visiting there. The last thing you want is someone tripping and falling over an urn that someone left on the ground. There are many reasons why they have to take them up there, and they brought them to a facility in Maryland where they would just be kept in like a filing cabinet. Yeah. This is 
massive filing cabinets full of the remains of Vietnam veterans. So Mike came on and talked to us about that along with the VFW and about the major issue that it was becoming and a growing issue as more and more of our Vietnam vets leave us. There is a group, the Missing in America Project, who struck a deal, an agreement with the National Park Service to coordinate the internment of 80 sets of cremated human remains that have been left at the Vietnam Veterans Memorial. We're going to do this at a private ceremony in Virginia, uh, but this is you know, a great thing because otherwise, again, the final resting place of these, these Vietnam vets, which they had hoped would be the Vietnam Veteran Memorial, was going to be a filing cabinet in Maryland. Now they're going to be at a, uh, a private cemetery in Virginia. So I think that's uh, a good thing. It's a beautiful thing. The question is, are they going to be able to continue doing this? Because it's not like, okay, we've got these 80 sets of remains that we've got now. I believe they have more than that, actually. It's not like it's going to stop. It's not like people are going to not bring more. Then you have people who go out there with ashes and just release them into the wind at the memorial. Yeah, that's not cool. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 the only way to, I guess, ensure that they're, they're left where they want it to be left. Of course, with the nature of ashes and wind and stuff like that, you... It's not going to stay there forever, but it's symbolically, at least anyway, allowing them to stay there. But again, yeah, you can't do that. That's not 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 a good thing. And while it may seem great and symbolic at first, then you got to think, well, then they're going to be swept up by someone who's cleaning at the uh, memorial and doing all this other stuff. So uh, really a good story that Missing in America Project is doing this. The question is, will they be able to continue doing it as time goes on? Is this going to be something that they're able to do repeatedly or once a year or something like that. And then you have the question of if people know that the Missing in America um, project is doing this, is that going to make more people actually leave the remains there and then allow a Missing in America project to bury them later? Are people going to assume, oh, okay, so they'll get to be at the wall for a day or two and then they'll be buried someplace nearby in Virginia. That could be a problem as well. Yeah. That's something that uh, maybe we should talk to Mike again and see if he's interested in coming in and giving us an update on that and whether the, uh, whether the numbers have slowed down, but I don't, th- I mean, the, the media attention on it where he came on our show and I saw him some other places, uh, he made an appearance on Tosh.0 because of the way that a, uh, a local journalist or a journalist from somewhere pronounced his name. Uh, it was quite humorous. <laughs> I have to ask him about that too. But the, uh, the fact that this is not going to, to stop, it may slow down. The media attention may have let people know like, oh, okay, this is not something that we should do. There's going to be people who didn't hear him on our show or didn't see him on any of the, the TV news programs that he was on. Uh, it's going to continue being an issue, and and it's an it's a fascinating thing, and it's, of course, a very sad thing that this is... Yeah. If the last wishes of you know uh, some soldier who served in Vietnam to his family or friends, his loved ones, leave me at the Vietnam Memorial, you got to do it, man. You know, Even if it's not what you're supposed to do, you're going to feel... I, I totally understand the 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 urge, the need to put them there and honor their last wishes. It's just, it's not allowed. And there's, as we talked to Mike before, there's no way that we can set up like a giant urn for people to dump ashes into, <laughs> like, you know, contribute it's, and have them all together. That's not funny. I'm sorry. No, but it's, it's, it's something that, you know, I thought of as maybe a possibility. Like, hey, all these people want to bring these ashes because that's what they're doing. They're not bringing like a casket with somebody in it and leaving it there. It's little urns, some really ornate boxes that they've gotten uh, over the years that they left there. But at least for the time being, they're going to be able to make a dent in the remains that have been left there thanks to this Missing in America project. And you can see that story and so many more right on our site, ConnectingVets.com. And, of course, follow us on social media where we are at ConnectingVets on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Top Gun, 
one of the greatest recruiting tools that the U.S. Navy ever had, Jake. And people don't realize it, well, some people don't, but the Navy was very heavily involved in the making of Top Gun, which is how they got all that great footage of the F-14s flying off the carriers, landing on the carriers, doing all this stuff. The Hollywood worked in conjunction with the Navy to do that, and it looks like they're doing it again. As Top Gun 2 is ready to, uh, it looks like they're in production. Tom Cruise tweeting out a photo of him in uniform. It looks like Maverick is now a captain. Think of that, Lieutenant Maverick, all these years later. First off, it's a, a long tra- career trajectory. We're talking 32 years, and he's uh, should be an admiral if he's still in yeah. at that point. But anyway. Does uh, anyone know, what was Maverick's real name? Um, m- uh, Billy. I don't. I don't remember. I, I know that he did have a real name in there, but it was uh, Tom Cruise or something like that. Yeah, that so it, it, it's always Tom Cruise. Yeah, so he's out there. Of course, the uh, the Air Force and the Navy taking some shots at each each other on social media, like trying to say like Air Force saying, like, "Well, if you want to fly a really good aircraft, you can come check out our blah blah blah." Uh, not mentioning, of course, that their top pilots uh, go through that Navy Top Gun program. That's where you learn how to do things. But anyway, uh, just keep an eye out for that. I believe it's coming out next year. It looks like Top Gun Two. Could be a recruiting boon for the Navy once again. I'm sure they're hoping that because, again, they are involved in it. A lot of access for the film crew, uh, but the Navy also gets to approve or disapprove anything that's in there. They don't get to disapprove or approve anything that's in this show. That's why we were just talking trash about garbage Mm. Navy uniforms. So much of this. Lucky for us. And that does end the first segment here of the morning briefing. We will be right back with Iraq and Afghanistan veterans of America after this. Helping military veterans stay connected. We make it easy. We're CBS Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting vets every day. Online and all over social media. Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter. At Connecting Vets. Welcome back to The Morning Briefing. I'm your host, Eric Dame. Jake Hughes is your producer, and ConnectingVets.com is your website. Created by, staffed by, and for veterans, Entercom Radio's ConnectingVets.com is connecting vets every day through a variety of platforms, including, well, this radio program. How about Phil Briggs' amazing podcast? The Benefits in My Backyard segment by Jonathan Copanger, and oh, so much more. You can find out about all of those things. Take a listen, take a watch, take a read over at ConnectingVets.com or via social media, where we are at Connecting Vets on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. A little click of your mouse or tap on your phone, and you will be living your best veteran life with the help of ConnectingVets.com. Each and every Monday, we are joined by Iraq and Afghanistan veterans of America, and today is no different. Well, it's actually a little bit different because we are joined by two representatives of IAVA. Of course, Melissa Bryant and Steph Mullen of IAVA are now in studio with us, and we have a lot of things that we're going to talk about today. First off, ladies, thank you so much for joining us once again for both of you, and for the first time together, I feel a little bit threatened (laughs) with the two of you sitting next to each other, like you're going to gang up on me and tell me, no, you listen, this is our show now. We are both from Philly, so it could happen. Nobody's perfect. Some people are far (laughs) from it. We call them Philadelphians where I'm from. (laughs) Take that. Anyway, there are a lot of things in the veteran community to talk about today. One of which I know that when it comes to Steph Mullen, Melissa, you can you can confirm this when statistics come out and numbers. She's just like party and it's time to have some fun. 
the Bureau of Labor Statistics on the jobs market has come out. I've been seeing a lot of reports on this uh, dating back to Friday, where it looked like unemployment was down to 3.8% overall in the United States. The U.S. added something like 233,000 jobs, and that's all fantastic. However, as we've seen in many cases, the national statistics and the veteran statistics don't quite line up. So these BLS numbers that have come out what do they tell us about the veteran community and how they're faring? Yes, as the resident egghead at IAVA, <laughs> uh, I will that say... That a normal shape to me. I don't know, but... <laughs> Thank you. I scrunched it in a little bit today. Uh, but numbers are my jam, and uh, the unemployment numbers are something that we look at every month, um, and this month is no different. So the ones that come out in early June are for May, um, and across the board, I will say, generally, good news story. Everyone is down, as you said, national unemployment is down 3.8%. Uh, the veteran unemployment rate is down. And post 9-11, vet unemployment is also down from last month. Uh, but what I will say is the post 9-11 veteran unemployment for women is up. Uh, and that tends to fluctuate month to month. It has to do with the sample size and the number of women that they talk to. Uh, but generally across the board, uh, post 9-11 women have a higher unemployment rate. Do we have any idea why that is? I mean, this is one group on an otherwise positive trend of statistics that we're talking about. The two of you are women. Maybe you have some insight that I don't. Why, Melissa, are women veterans facing uh, you know, higher unemployment rights, rates than their male counterparts? Uh, simply put, it's the uh, higher burdens that many women face just in, in life. And then and as veterans, it, it translates over into our post-military careers. And so we're often... Uh, single mothers. We're often the ones who are, even though we may be uh, of higher education rates than our male counterparts, male veteran counterparts, we're often underemployed, if not unemployed. And so it's a trend that we see nationally across the board for women that sadly translates over to women veterans as well. And so we think that that's really the reason. And Steph, I don't know if there's other uh, concrete evidence that can point to why women veterans tend to be unemployed or even underemployed but it tracks with what we know of women in general and the unemployment rates. It's kind of similar to the homeless rate as well. And it's exactly. also difficult to track because you have female veterans, as you said, more often tend to have the care of children and sole care of children more often than male veterans. They are therefore less likely to be living out on the streets, as right. we, of course, think about it. You know, you think about the homeless veteran. It's a guy, Vietnam ball cap, big gray beard living under an overpass. That's not what homelessness is all the time. And for women veterans, it's it's particularly different where they're often couch surfing, moving from friend to friend to relative to friend. Or living in cars. Or, yeah, or finding a way to somehow keep some semblance of a roof over their head while not having uh, what most of us would consider an acceptable domicile. Steph, when it comes to the unemployment rate, I'm sure there are other factors that need to be taken into account. You being a statistical fan, you know that there are things like, okay, there are more women who do not have a profession other than homemaker, for example. So that can affect the numbers. That doesn't count to, I believe, these studies as like a job, as an employment. Uh, but overall, uh, would you say that this is troubling or is this something that we've kind of come to expect from these unemployment numbers when you take into account all these other factors? So a bit of both. I'll take a step back. Of course, it's troubling uh, to see a higher unemployment rate for uh, post 9-11 women veterans. What that tells us is that they're looking for work and not finding it. Uh, I think age is a huge factor here that we can't disregard, right? So post 9-11 women veterans, you're looking at 
20s, 30s, 40s. These are women that are in the childbearing age, they're getting married, they're coming out of school, and they're looking for work. And generally, that is some of the triggers that we see that can influence your employment uh, and employability. Um, I will also say, though, that there's a dichotomy in that because women veterans tend to be higher, have higher education levels, um, and they also tend to have um, managerial positions when they are employed. They're more likely to be in those roles. There's also interesting things when it comes to education, and we've talked to a lot of people about this, where a degree doesn't necessarily guarantee a job. For one, a degree doesn't guarantee that even in your chosen field of study, there are going to be jobs available. You can do one in, you know, like exotic dancing, and if there's no exotic dancing jobs out there, your doctorate in shaking it isn't going to do you much good. You know what I mean? That was what my original major was. They made me change it because the, the VA didn't want to pay for my GI Bill under that. Probably but. a smart I, I, I disagree entirely, <laughs> but that's okay. Some people uh, have different opinions. Some people like Philadelphia sports teams like Melissa Bryant and Steph Mullen <laughs> from IAVA. We're joining us here on a wacky Monday morning already. So when it comes to things like that, I mean, the, the, the job track that you've chosen is there's no guarantee that there are going to be jobs there. And some of the jobs that are most wide open and looking for people tend to be jobs that rightly or not we think about as male jobs like mechanic or things like that where there's a real shortage in those industries do we think that we should probably be doing something to look at to get more women involved in in those industries where they traditionally haven't been so i think that brings up a good point of underemployment um which is when you feel like your experience or your education level doesn't match the work that you're doing, or perhaps you're working part-time and you want to be working full-time. So BLS doesn't really track that or ask anything about it. We do ask in our member survey and find that about 30% of IAVA members feel that they're underemployed. And I, I think that is the most concerning one for me, that we have this huge population of our post 9-11 members that feel that they're not in the right position that they should be especially after they're using their GI Bill, they're using their benefits to go forward, get that education, as Eric spoke to, and they're still not getting the benefits of, of putting in that hard work, both through their service and through their schooling after service. And so I, I agree with you there. Yeah, and there's a lot of things to take into account, and there can be a lot of factors, and that's why statistics are such an odd thing to look at, where you have to take those into account. Like, again, what's the field of study that you're in? What jobs are actually available in that? The GI Bill, for example, they don't concern themselves with that. Vocational rehab, I tried to go through vocational rehab because I was eligible for it, and I knew what I wanted to do, and this is not the exotic dancing degree. This was after that. They said no. They said there weren't enough jobs in my chosen field of study to make it valid for them to give me uh, what it amounted to extra money and extra time to go after the, the degree. So, uh, you know, there are people that need to do their research and make sure like, hey, this sounds really cool, but is it also something that I could could use as a profession or am I going to need to do something else? It's all very interesting stuff. And of course, I think can be spun by most people to mean whatever they want it to mean, to mean that, oh, you know, the military's uh, really not doing enough to help women or the other people saying, well, you see, women aren't doing enough to help themselves. I mean, you can, you can take different angles on it, but it sounds like overall, with the exception of the issue of women veterans unemployment staff, that this was not a bad report coming out of the Bureau of Labor and Statistics. Yeah, I will just highlight uh, maybe the past three or four months post 9-11 unemployment has been a little bit higher than we've seen at the beginning of the year. We had that like really low, about 3% early on, and it kind of jumped in the past few months, but we're seeing that kind of trend down. Uh, what that tells me is that the numbers are evening out. We're all kind of coming to consensus, uh, and overall, uh, I think it's a good news story. 
There are always going to be, be people who cannot work or who will not work. There are a lot of people, though, who are looking for work. And then there are those, and this is the last part I want to bring up on this and see what uh, what your thoughts on this is. There are those who have stopped looking for work. And the Bureau of Labor and Statistics, or Bureau of Labor Statistics, they don't cover those people, right? When it comes to unemployment, that only covers people who are still looking for work. Those who've given up, thrown their hands up and said, all right, I guess whatever, I'll just throw caution to the wind and drift along. Those people aren't accounted for here, are they? And how much of a concern is that? That's correct. And certainly a concern. That's why I would caution in saying looking at unemployment rate is only one marker of a good economy. Uh, and unemployment rate in and of itself doesn't tell you really where the American economy stands and really where the American workforce stands. You have or to where look. Where the American veterans stand. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You definitely have to look at some of the other markers, um, employment, population ratio, things like that, where it shows you how many are working versus how many total. Um, and that generally is around 50% for veterans. Um, and you're capturing some of it there where people just are out of the workforce, they're disabled and they can't work, they don't want to work. Um, and that's certainly something that we always have our eye on and look to be part of in the future. Really what it all means is that we just need to pay attention to this stuff and that statistics uh, give you an idea of things. They don't always tell you everything. It's not like it's not like baseball where you know someone's hitting 350 or they're not hitting 350. In this one, there are other factors for us to consider that we need to take into account. And IAVA is, of course, going to keep an eye on that with, I mean, Steph Mullen just admitted right here, <laughs> numbers are my jam, I believe, were the exact words. I mean, that that really should We're gonna be. We're going to put that into her bio. That should be on her bio. <laughs> Steph, numbers is my jam. Numbers are my jam. Mullen, and we're speaking to Steph and Melissa Bryant from IAVA. Uh, another interesting issue that just came out on Friday, that is an executive order on mental health and transitioning service members. Melissa, what can you tell us about this executive order? We've been waiting for this executive order for some time now, for months. And Steph, actually, again, our resident egghead, too, is a part of the VSO working group that was working with the VA to help craft the 16 action items that have now come out from the White House some of them are a bit of repackaging of, of things that were already uh, being implemented and being are now consolidated under this executive order joint action plan between DOD, VA, and DHS. And there's other items that are brand new. Um, we're happy to see some pieces of this that are going to really help those who are transitioning, like increased VSO support within the transition assistance program and changes to the transition assistance program to let people know what available resources are out there as you're going through separation. But um, I would caution against this being a panacea and that the executive order in capturing transition and service members, it's highly important, but that's only a fraction of those who are at risk in our population. And that's something important to keep in mind when you can say something, this is a positive step, I would say. However, it doesn't mean, hey, everything's good now, guys. Go back to not paying attention. We still need to focus on these issues. And one executive order isn't going to fix the litany of issues that we have with transitioning service members. Uh, and changes that we make to the TAP program are probably, hopefully, going to be good changes. But until you see them in action and see what the results are, we can't know that for sure, can we? And this is going to be years in the making. This goes hand in hand with what we've call an increased lash up between DOD and VA and being able to have those same wraparound services, have the same type of care and expectation of care that you have when you were in uniform carrying over to your veteran experience. And so just like with the Cerner contract and bringing over electronic health care records from DOD to VA, that's going to be a, a decade long process in doing that. 
this transition executive order for those who are transitioning at the military and the VA, it hopes to get to that point of ensuring that you're not slipping through the cracks. You're not feeling left alone and unafraid after you've transitioned out of service. The TAP class was always interesting to me, having gone through it seven years ago now, um, that it was typically run by people who are on active duty military. Mm-hmm. So you look at them and you wonder, oh, what the heck do you know about transitioning? You're still wearing the uniform. How are you the one telling me what to do? And then you also had uh, veterans typically who had gone straight into working government jobs for, you guessed it, the military. Is there anything in here that's going to have more uh, outside interaction from the professional world, or is that something that we still need to work on? That's the goal. Um, it definitely is something we still need to work for, uh, work on. And so I've participated in meetings with DOD, with the TAP program, and also uh, for the Army with Soldier for Life, and have given that exact feedback. As one of those folks that you described who went from the military, went straight into an intelligence job in federal government. He mm-hmm. was a, it was a relatively smooth transition for me. I yeah, knew he just wore different clothes to work every day. That's exactly. All it was. <laughs> exactly. Took my clearance and kept on moving. And so um, I, I completely understand that that process. And for me, it was all about how do I figure out USA jobs when I was mm. coming out of the military, which in and of itself is its own animal. But yeah. For bringing in the outside expertise, for really bringing in someone who can help you translate your resume from military jargon into something a civilian can read and make sense of, and then that in turn uh, show your marketable skill set. That's something that DOD has long known they need to improve on, and I know that the folks at TAP are trying to work toward that. This should hopefully help with that. Because we understand that having that gainful employment, having a path forward when you come out of the military, that's going to be one of the linchpins to your success in mental health. And hopefully not turning to other darker suicidal ideations, because that's essentially what this is getting toward, is trying to reduce that 20 veteran suicides a day. One of the things that I heard in there was having more VSO involvement in the TAP class, which is positive because the VSOs have, uh, you know, they have people working in a variety of jobs, a variety of name a career field. There's a member of a VSO working in it, which is often the case with those who are transitioning out. Like when I was in my tap class, there was a surgeon sitting next to him, next to me. Nothing that they were saying other than how to figure out benefits was applicable to him. He eventually right. ended up stopped coming to the class. He was <laughs> like, I, this is not helpful at all to me. I'm just wasting my time. There needs to be more of an effort to focus on the fact that, you know, there are things that each of us are going to have to do differently, but there are those things that are similar. Is that where tap class is going to focus on more now? Those, those common things that apply to everybody instead of just those who want to go work for the government and those who are continuing on in their, their military like professions. That's what we're hearing. They're also focused on licensing and credentialing. You talked before about mechanics and, and trying to encourage uh, all genders to apply for those types of jobs. And so, um, one of the focuses of TAP is going to be taking your portable skills that you learn from the military. How do we package that? How do we make sure that those licenses and credentials can cross state lines? Um, and not just for the service member, but also for their spouses and for their dependents as well. Um, so that's one element, bringing in the VSOs to talk about all different types of jobs that they could do, like jobs and advocacy. Um, the IVA is hiring folks. And so there's plenty of things that you can do post your service life to either continue your service in other ways uh, that I'm sure VSOs will be heavily involved in that process with TAP and in showing people those other ways in which you can uh, continue your service. And then thinking even of jobs that you may not even have thought of while you were in the military. You may have been a cook and you may decide you want to go be a masseuse. So that's the whole goal of TAP is to broaden your horizons of what's out there and what available resources can get you to that point. 
And it's not just about employment either, especially when we're talking about this executive order and the changes that will be made with TAP. It's also about knowing what your health care options are, knowing what your benefit options are, knowing that VSOs can provide a place of community as you're transitioning out uh, and maybe even give you that sense of purpose that you may be losing as you're making this transition. Um, so as we look at those changes in TAP, as the employment is a very important part of that, there's also those other changes that affect your mental health and your physical health that do impact employment in the long run. Absolutely. Important things that we're talking about with IAVA's Melissa Bryant and Steph Mullen, the chief strategy officer, as well as the chief uh, statistical egghead, I believe is the official, <laughs> that's official, the official title. title, right? The, the, the numbers in my jam executive uh, of of numbers and my jam that I just say. Oh my goodness, already a long day. Uh, from Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America. And interesting when we talk about VSO involvement, there are going to be some people who say, oh, you know what? This is just going to be uh, their chance to recruit people. That's all they want. They want more members. Well, in the case of IAVA, of course, membership doesn't cost anything. So uh, there wouldn't be any problem there. But I think with the other VSOs who tend to have uh, some much older members, they are a little bit different from IAVA because of the, the timeframes that we're dealing with there. But some of those older VSO uh, members and those older veterans who are out there have a wealth of knowledge. They've been out for a long time. They've been dealing with the VA for a long time. They know what jobs are all about. I mean, that could be a net positive for people as well, couldn't it? Could it could be. It absolutely could be. Uh, you know, I've always said we stand on the shoulders of giants. And so some advice you take with a grain of salt, um, but for the most part, you have to look to our older generations, especially when you're looking at navigating the VA. I mean, I, I look to our brethren from, from, or I should say our fathers rather, from Vietnam Veterans of America and, and, and beyond who understand the VA, who understand intimately the bureaucracy and the history of it, of why it is the way it is now. And yeah. so you have to have that perspective because past is prologue and you need to know what you're getting yourself into when you're separating from service and you need to take those lessons learned. I think back to my uh, my my VFW post back home, Dominic Feeney, Korean War Bronze Star with V for Valor recipient, had been dealing with the VA for five plus decades, six mm -hmm. decades. Uh, may he rest in peace up until the time that he died. There's so much knowledge out there in the veteran community, including in the Iraq and Afghanistan veteran community where, listen, we're dealing with not just the VA in general, but the specifics. There are those OEF, OIF floors at VA medical centers now. And uh, IAVA is a great resource for people, whether they're members or not, isn't it? Absolutely. So what we're doing uh, coming up the, this week, actually, is storming the hill. We want to spread awareness of all the issues that we're pushing for OIF and OEF veterans. Um, you've heard me on this program before, and Tom Porter and uh, has talked about burn pits and toxic exposures. And so that's going to be a big push for us going into this week with our storm the hill activities. There's a hearing on Thursday yep. where uh, we're going to testify on uh, Tom's actually going to testify on our issues surrounding burn pits and all the messages and stories that we've been hearing from our members. They've been coming in through Twitter, hashtag burn pits. You can take a look at that, but that's going to be a heavy focus for us going forward. We're also going to talk about cannabis and we're going to talk about our She Who Born the Battle campaign, supporting women vets, just like we were talking about at the top of the show with women who are struggling to find employment and struggling to find uh, their, their place within the VA. That's going to be another focus of our Storm the Hill activities as well. When it comes to national level politicians in particular, even state level politicians, I think there are a lot of us that feel like they're just they're they're these things. They're this idea off in the distance. They're not even real people to many of us, you know. They're just the politicians. It's kind of ethereal being. 
how important do you think it is for members of IAVA to be able to actually come to D.C. and see that these are flesh and blood people and you know what? They answer to us. It's absolutely critical. I mean, it's what we enjoy at IAVA is a very politically savvy, very heavily engaged population in, in our membership. And so we get so much excitement out of the folks who fly in from all across the country to come join us and to advocate for the issues that they send us letters, emails by courier pigeon, you know, however way that they tell us of all the things that they're seeing across the spectrum impacting the lives of veterans. We talked about our big six policy priorities, starting from mental health and suicide prevention, going all the way down into uh, utilizing can or uh, excuse me, supporting veterans to utilize cannabis. And so in going through those six priorities and advocating for those six priorities that have come through member surveys administered by resident egghead Steph Mullen, it's critical that they then do that in real life. And it's critical that they then take all that they've been sending us over the years and then sit and advocate with uh, those members of Congress and share those stories in person because they do listen, they do hear you. And when they're able to put a face to an issue, that's when you start to see action. And, of course, if you're one of those people who thinks, well, the politicians are just liars anyway, they're just going to lie to my face. Well, then guess what? You now have that if they lied to you, and you can tell people about mm -hmm. that, and you can make sure that you hold them accountable when it comes time for those elections when they come up. So this is really a multifaceted thing. This isn't just a grip and grin, show up, meet and greet politician, is it? No, absolutely not. This is a speak to the issues our members come and they tell them what they're seeing back in their communities. They also storm back in their home districts uh, when uh, Congress is on recess in the summer. And so this is a continuing conversation. And that's what our members who come to storm with us see is that it's a continuing conversation face to face with real members of Congress, not just people who are on the, uh, the cable news networks every now and then speaking about vet issues. And we also, in turn, honor them for it. So part of our weekly activities uh, going into this week on Wednesday will be IVA Salutes. It's our second annual Salutes event. We're going to be honoring Representative Brian Mast out of Florida, who is post-911 vet, um, double amputee, OEF vet, stepped up to the challenge to champion issues for veterans. And he and Tulsi Gabbard, representative from Hawaii, introduced the Burn Pits Accountability Act. So they put their money where their mouth is. It wasn't just a grip and grin. They really are championing an issue that is near and dear to the post-911 generation. And I highly encourage anyone who's in town in D.C. to come join us on Wednesday evening to honor him and also Leo Shane, champion for Military Times, who writes on all of our issues. Excellent reporter covering a lot of stories who I have yet to meet. We've and who is a Philadelphian room. and oh, we call blasphemy. Okay. I was going to say, I have <laughs> yet to meet him. I have yet to meet him. We've been in the same room several times. Uh, now that I know he's a Philadelphian, though, <laughs> that's fine. I'm good with it. There you go. Well, of course, Melissa Bryant and Steph Mullen, thank you so much for joining us. If people want to find out more about Iraq and Afghanistan veterans of America, where do they go to do so? As always, go to IAVA.org, learn more about our advocacy in Washington and learn about our rabbit response referral program and any of our uh, upcoming events. I look forward to the addition of numbers are my jam to the bio of <laughs> Steph Mullen. You can find me on the hashtag, uh, <laughs> hashtag numbers are my jam on Twitter <laughs> at Steph Mulls. Uh, and our Twitter is at IAVA, Facebook, Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America. And for Storm the Hill, you can follow everything we're doing at stormthehill.org. You're listening to The Morning Briefing, Monday edition. We will be back right after this. Helping military veterans stay connected. We make it easy. We are CBS Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting vets every day. Online and all over social media. Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter at ConnectingVets.
What is up, everybody? Welcome back to The Morning Briefing. I'm Super Producer Jake Hughes, sitting here in the driver's seat. And I want to remind you real quick, and I'm going to keep reminding you until you do it, to visit our website, ConnectingVets.com, your one-stop shop for all things veteran, veteran, veteran and military-related. I kind of derped the words there. And also make sure you follow us on social media. We are at Connecting Vets on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter. Follow us. You'll get the latest and greatest things popping off as soon as they happen in the military and veteran community. Now, speaking of really cool stuff, I am joined by a very special guest, someone who came out here to talk to us, and I want to appreciate that. Sue Crystalman Soar, the Vice President of Program Impact for the National Restaurant Association Education Foundation. And I think I deserve a medal for, for getting all that out in one play. How are you doing today, Sue? Uh, well, thank you. It's an honor to be here. Well, it's an honor to have you. Thank you very much for showing up. Now, Let's talk real quick about you. Uh, do you have any military in relations in your family? Absolutely. My husband is a disabled military veteran. Oh, wow. So you're a military spouse. Okay. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. Uh, so how long have you, how long was his service? How long have you been married to him? Um, we have been married almost 21 years. Uh, his service was for, uh, mm, from the 80s to the early 90s. Um, so for about eight years, uh, and then he returned and did service with the U S government. Okay. Awesome. Now the net, now when I told the people here at connectingvets.com that I had an interview with the NRA, they were very shocked. And then I had to specify, no, no, not the NRA, NRA, the other NRA national restaurant association. Uh, so tell us exactly what is it that you at the national restaurant association education foundation, what is it y'all do? We are all about empowerment, advancement, and attraction to the workforce and engagement of individuals of the restaurant industry. Um, we think the industry is phenomenal. It has a low bar of entry. There is so much potential. There is many avenues and, and high achievement that can go across any direction that you want to go. Um, we are a very diverse industry, and uh, we want to uh, let people know that we can be an incredible employment opportunity and employment home for them. Okay. Now, I'm looking at the email that y'all sent me, and there's a lot of really cool stuff I mean, uh, see, you've done stuff for posts on for military posts on base, helping them improve defect facilities. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about, bit about that? Yeah, so I want to step back a little and say that we already know that our industry has the military in it. If we look at our managers in the restaurant industry, we know there's a greater percentage of managers who come from a military background than their non-military manager counterparts. This is same true for supervisor. The number of uh, restaurants owned by veterans is increasing. It increased about 6,000 in the last five years. Oh, wow. And so we, are, uh, we understand and we uh, value the military training and service and the talent pool that comes to our industry. And our goal at the foundation is to make that transition easier um, and to ensure that as an industry, we are leveraging the talent and being a phenomenal employment home for them. Our military uh, programs have a very long history, and it really starts out with uh, a celebration and assistance with the evaluation of military food service. And we've been doing this for over 60 years with that. Uh, we, along with active duty military, 
uh, go and send individuals from industry out to the military bases once a year to help with the evaluation of culinary food service. And then we create a platform for the awarding of the best across all of the branches and a celebration of that, which we just had two weeks ago. Wow, that's because being I was in the I was in the army for thirteen years, and I can tell you that the food at Defacts can rank can vary in uh, in goodness. We'll say, I mean, sometimes it's like, why are you serving me a pig's foot? But the other time, you can actually get really, really high quality meals there. Surprisingly enough, the best Defacts I ever had were actually in Iraq. I think those those were contractors, like you know, Kuwaiti contractors. So that's neither here nor there. <laughs> we're gonna stop talking about that, and we're gonna move back on to the military stuff. Now, um, I want to take a quick step back and ask you. Just mentioned that uh, military members and veterans are increasing as far as restaurant owners and managers. Why do you think that is? What is it about military service that translates so well to being upper echelons in the food service industry? a really great question and uh, we're we're starting to explore that and have some recent data on it so what do you need to be successful in food service and in the restaurant industry and what type of person is attracted to that well number one is teamwork Um, and it's all coming together doing your jobs to get something done it's customer service and customer interaction it is um, being seen what the ultimate goal is and coming up with a plan for that. And that is our food industry. And so I think that um, the success that one finds in the military and the family environment of the military, I, I think some of that is found in the restaurant industry. And then as owner operators, then in creating that as well. And as managers, it's getting your team ready to go and leading forward with that and supervisors as well. The skills that are gained, no matter what you do in the military, translate well to our industry. And I, I think also, and again, I've never worked in the food service industry. I've never worked at a restaurant or anything like that. But I have a lot of friends who have. And I hear that it can be a very stressful environment that if you're not prepared for that. And so I think, do you think that the military... Because we deal with stresses that most people don't even imagine, and we deal with them constantly. Do you think that helps as well? And, and is it stress or is it high pace, depending on what's going on around you? And I, I think exactly to your point that there's a lot of things that go on around you. There are a lot of things that aren't always consistent in patterning. patterning. And um, I think that the military training and environment um, translates well into that in, in terms of what goes on in a restaurant. That, you know, as, as patrons in a restaurant, you may just see that person who comes to the table but it's a whole machine and operation that goes into that. You know, not only just those who are there on the front of the house who greet you, seat you, you know, serve you, clean your table, but that, and then not only what's going on in the back, who's cooking, but then your ordering, supply chain management, your marketing, your social media, your HR, it's all working together towards this end product that comes out as a plate. That's amazing because people only think of food as, oh, I got the food, I ate it, it's good food, so that's a good restaurant. There's so much more to it. I People don't think about that a lot. So I want to know or I want to ask you about a certain thing that y'all did on Armed Forces Day. Can you tell me about that? So over um, Armed Forces Day is when we had our celebration um, for military food service and the wards across all of the branches of the top uh, 
culinary service. And then we also, concurrent with that, held a training for the winning teams that had to do with culinary management. Um, and that all fell over the weekend of Armed uh, Forces Day. Okay, awesome. Uh, so let's talk about... I'm reading the email here, and it says that each year the restaurant industry hires 100,000 service members in management positions. And they, uh, military men and women face specific challenges when it comes to creating a functional kitchen, including limited access to running water, fresh food, and electricity. So do you think that we already talked about, I'm kind of mumbling here, I apologize. We already talked about how military experience can translate directly towards food service industry. Do you think that, because when I think of military defects, I don't only think about the ones on post. I, again, think about some of the ones I ate at in Iraq. And a lot of the times that was just a cook, one cook with a tent making meals for like a hundred people. Do you think that those hardship experiences help when it comes to running a restaurant? Absolutely. And I should say that it's not even just people in the military who've been in culinary. We we hire well beyond that as well because I think of uh, all the experiences in the military translating well. And we have a well-laid-out competency career pathway that defines what you need at each level that takes you from entry level all the way up to restaurant manager. And we're now working with the military to try and translate what goes on and the training that goes on in service and translate it over for our industry to be able to broach that communication between that. But absolutely, the ability to quickly adjust and adapt, keeping with guidelines, and at the end of the day, keeping the individuals that you work with and serve safe, that, that's all key to that. Um, so being out in the field and seeing what needs to get done, knowing what the boundaries are for that, um, understanding what the key components of safety are and then delivering. That's absolutely um, what's necessary at, at anything in life and uh, applicable to the industry. Okay. Now, I wanted to ask you a bit of a nebulous or, hypoth or not hypothetical, a bit of a broader question. Why do you think it's important that restaurants hire veterans? Why do you think that veterans... Well, I don't want to say deserve, but why do you think that uh, service members, it's important that we hire service members? I, I think we would be honored and lucky to hire such a valuable talent pool into our industry, and it would only um, elevate our industry. Uh, incredible training, incredible commitment, uh, teamwork. It, it just elevates us to where we, we need to go. Um, what we need to be is the great employment home. And it's really about employment home is uh, finding a place where you can be who you are and then grow and knowing how that growth and advancement is in the directions that you want to go. And I believe that our industry can provide that as well. Okay. Speaking of that, how do you, this might, might be a question you can't answer, but how do you market yourself to service members, like people who aren't food service in the military, like say the Joe the infantryman or Jake the tanker, because I was a tanker. <laughs> <laughs> Just as a pure speculation, not based on anyone, but uh, how do you attract service members to your uh, field? That's a really great question, and that is something that we are beginning to evolve 
So it all starts out with uh, what we call our Travelers Program, and that's the program where we have industry go and visit and help to evaluate the military bases. And we start, you know, we're there for everybody to see, and we're able to communicate that we are such a great industry. Our website is now evolving, and on there we have a specific, you know, spot for military. Um, and that is to say that we are here and here are the opportunities that we can have and we're developing that out as well. Um, we're now looking at uh, working with um, the DOD transition programs and the DOD spouses programs uh, and to figure out where we need to be and how we need to best communicate that we indeed um, are a great employment home and we welcome and would feel honored to have the talent from the military. All right. And now, we're on the radio today with you. <laughs> hey, that, that, well, you certainly made a right choice. <laughs> um, going back to what you were actually just to what you were just talking about, about how you try to attract people. You also, I understand, have uh, grants and scholarships you offer. Could you tell me a little bit about those? Absolutely. Um, at the foundation, we do have a robust scholarship and grant program. Uh, we award approximately $750,000 in scholarships and grants annually to individuals pursuing post-secondary education and training. And these scholarships are open to anyone. Uh, currently, right now, we do have one designated scholarships for female military veterans. Oh, wow. Um, and, you know, as I say, as our prog program starts evolving, we'll be looking at, you know, what's what's needed out there and how we best serve the community to, uh, to address that. But these scholarships open, we open up our application system in about January. We encourage anybody to apply there for anybody produce, uh, pursuing education uh, in the industry. Uh, and that can be any aspect of the industry. Uh, it's a sort of one stop, put in all your information into that. And then the, um, they're awarded in the spring. And we would love, love to have more individuals um, from the military. And that is broadly defined as not only those um, with prior service, but it's also their families um, come and apply for it. And I should say that we have uh, at the foundation a career and uh, a high school career and technical education training program for culinary and restaurant management and we are in 19 uh, Dodia schools. Oh, wow. So, okay, I had a question, just kind of popped out <laughs> of there. Give me a minute. Give me a second. Okay, uh, these scholarships, you mentioned that they are for specific fields. So, like, you can't get the scholarship and then go study to be an optometrist. You got to, it has to be for culinary school or business management or what, what, what sort of things does this, does the scholarship cover? It, it's basically, um, it is pursuing education related to the industry. So, um, there are actually specific scholarships related to supply chain management in the food industry and management. Um, you could be pursuing, you know, human resources in the industry. You could be pursuing culinary. You could be pursuing hospitality management. Again, there's are so many opportunities out there, um, and it's geared towards individuals who are focused in the industry, hospitality industry, um, and to help uh, support their education. Okay. Do you offer, I see on the website, I'm looking, you offer certifications, 
And I'm noticing it specifically because the photo has two people who are in uniform, a Marine gunnery sergeant and a Air Force, uh, I believe that's a master sergeant. I don't know why the gunnery sergeant isn't chewing out the Air Force guy because <laughs> he's a Marine. And about collaboration here. Exactly. He's a Marine. That's what they do. <laughs> but uh, so do you offer certifications and, and courses and stuff like that for active duty military as well? Or is it only people who have gotten out and are now seeking to go into the industry? So our tr recent training was active duty reservists and guardists, and um, we are working with the branches looking at how their training relates to the training that uh, goes with our competency model. Um, the association itself um, has, and not the foundation, has all of the serve safe trainings that they support, and they do uh, work with the military for those trainings. Um, as the foundations, what we're looking at is bringing programming to the community um, to better bridge that gap. So in looking at the um, certificates and credentialing, we really um, partner with the association to for those, and we look at the programming um, that can assist in the delivery. All right. Now, switching gears a little bit, too, I see you also offer apprenticeships. How do you work about that like how do you get people into companies like and what kind of companies do they apprentice with um that is such a great press uh question and well we, thank you it's kind of my job <laughs> <laughs> we are so proud of our um department of labor um registered restaurant manager apprenticeship program and this is an employer-based program. So the employers will identify individuals um, at their restaurants who they think are really great candidates um, to become restaurant managers, and they will become uh, an apprentice. It's an earn-as-you-learn, a full-time employee um, with training, and it's competency-based. Um, and so basically a guidance on all of the competencies and trainings necessary to lead you up to become a restaurant manager. Um, to your second point of, so how are we linking military to these? And that is an effort that we have underway now when we're looking at how best to bridge those gaps to bring the military to those employers as they're transitioning. And we're starting to look at the programming um, around to do that. And we're also um, starting to look at how to uh, identify the employers who are supporting the apprenticeship program to the individuals in the military. All right. Yeah, I'm looking at the website. I'm looking at the uh, the military posts, and you say the have the thing at the bottom, we thank you for your service, and it's got all the different insignias and stuff. I see you even have – you go as far as to thank the Coast Guard Reserve. Y'all are – dedicated to thinking the military that because people don't i don't even i don't even knew that was a thing until like a year ago uh and the coast guards are are part of um the platform for the awarding of the base evaluation and they also are uh looking at the apprenticeship program as well and so really uh we we really thank everybody uh for their dedication and service to the country and really want to um make them see us as a, a great um, place to be next step or for the family. Right. But how can you offer scholarships to the Coast Guard? They're not the real military. <laughs> <laughs> we offer scholarships to everybody. I'm, um, <laughs> I know. I'm kidding. I joke the Air Force. I joke the Coast Guard and the Air Force too. But all right. Now, um, you have all these things. Do you have... Uh, <laughs> 
a question is going through my mind, and that is, why is your organization doing all this work for veterans? I mean, surely there could be, you know, just as qualified people in the civilian sector. Why target veterans like this? Um, I love the little shit you got, like, isn't it obvious? <laughs> you know, uh, how do you thank people and families um, for going out there and um, putting themselves before you, right? So that's like going to somebody in the military and saying, why are you out there, you know, putting yourself on the front line for all those people who aren't back there? So how, how do you say thank you? Um, and how do you support when the person's ready for their next step or their, their family needs the support? How do you do that? Well, we as an industry um, are so thankful for the service and um, are, are want to in every way um, support them who support us. Okay. Now, a question I have, and I probably should have asked this at the beginning, but I got a little discombobulated. Uh, Besides the military aspects, what does the NRASF, uh, I can say it because I don't feel like saying the entire thing. It's NRA-EF. a mouthful. <laughs> NRAEF. I'm sorry. I can't even get the acronym right. Gosh. Special Forces. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Special Forces Kitchen. Imagine Gordon Ramsay popping in through windows in full tack gear. Uh, no, okay, so what else do y'all do besides offer the scholarships and do the military programs? What, are you, what do y'all do? So we're all, as I said, we're all about uh, attraction, empowerment, and advancement. And we have um, five main programs that fall under this. We've touched on two of them, which is the military and the scholarships and the grants. So actually, we've touched on three. We've talked about the apprenticeship program which is really about the advancement and the career pathway. Um, I talked a little bit about um, our ProStart program, which is a two-year high school and career and technical education program. Um, it has been around for over 20 years. We are in 1,800 schools across the country. Um, we touch 140,000 students a year. Uh, we're in all 50 states and uh, DoDEA schools as well. And then uh, we have recently become, uh, begun an opportunity youth program. And this is all looking at how to attract and empower um, individuals 16 to 24 who aren't currently in school or employed um, into the industry and make them ready to work. And then from there, picking them up on our other program. Okay. Now... We mentioned before we went on air, you want to talk about how to find these scholarships. Like, uh, how do you, like, apply for this scholarship, or how do you find things that are out there for people? Um, so on our webpage, there is a, a scholarship uh, link to there, and the the application system opens up um, usually about January, mid-January, and it is a one-stop application system. So you're not applying for all the different scholarships there where you are. You basically place your information into there. Um, as you, based on that information, become eligible for certain scholarships, it may ask you for an extra essay or two here or there. You go through the whole process, and then it's awarded. So definitely keep your eye on that page, and mid-January, go in and apply. Okay, now I... we're. 
running a little short on time. I have one important question. This is the biggest thought on the mind of all military people when they think about food service in the military, and that is this. What are you doing to make a better tasting MRE? Because <laughs> seriously, we're hurting over here. Um, I, I really laugh because uh, when I met my now husband, um, I was exposed to these. and, and <laughs> You've, you've seen the ago. horror. Um, and uh, that, that goes uh, well beyond our foundation. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, so if people want to know more about the National Restaurant Association Education Foundation, boom, got it all, where do they go? Um, they go to ChooseRestaurants.org. ChooseRestaurants.org. All right. Sue Crystal Mansour, thank you so much for coming by. Uh, it's been an honor, and thank you all for your service. All right. You're listening to The Morning Briefing. We shall return right after this. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? We make getting custom window treatments a minor project with major impact. Choose from premium blinds, shades, and shutters. We even have options for your patio, too. Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Our design experts can help you find the perfect window treatments on your schedule. We'll even send free samples directly to you. Plus, we can handle the measuring and installation for you. Unlimited window treatments installed for just one low cost. And with Blinds.com, you'll always get transparent pricing. No hidden fees. Our free shipping and 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step. And into your home, too. Shop Blinds.com right now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off for a limited time at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply.